0: All right. What's going on? Welcome, everyone, to this week's edition of the Roundtable, where we're, we're fighting isolation and with fun conversations with friends, and got the usual co-host, Jeff Dodge, here with me, and two other guests today, uh, Jim Walker and Doug Boatman, and uh, I meet with these guys uh, every week, and uh, it's I call it my Caleb group, because in our first year at Uh, Veritas this is actually 10 years ago when we started Veritas we went through the book of Joshua and we saw the example of Caleb the the old guy in his 80s who was still trying to follow God in faith taking risks and so we started calling the old people of Veritas the Calebs and so uh, that's where we're even in old age just continuing to press on uh, toward the kingdom of God so these guys have been uh, a lifeline for me weekly, just touching base with them um, and being inspired by their faith and learning from their wisdom. And so we're missing a couple guys um, uh, that that aren't here this morning or aren't with us. Um, and so, uh, but we've got these guys. So we've got a topic today um, that I'm seeking wisdom from you guys on the answer to this question. I'm raising teenagers. And so we've got, we've got a lot of teenagers in our house. And also, uh, we've got a church full of young people as well. And so um, I came across this, uh, it's called Micro's Sweat Pledge. You can see that the Sweat Pledge. Sweat is an acrostic for skill and work ethic aren't taboo. And so, Micro, uh, you know, he's <laughs> the host of dirty jobs and. Uh, he just talks about work and what that looks like. So I want, I want to process this with you guys and see what kind of wisdom I can get from you on this topic. So thanks for coming on. Um, I'm going to go through these one by one. There's 12 of them. And I just want to get your, your thoughts on how, uh, whether you agree or disagree, or if there's uh, just perspective you can give on each of these points that he makes. And one of the things that we do every week in our Caleb group is we read through the Proverbs. And, and I've found that these 12 things are, uh, they're not necessarily Bible verses, but I think there's a lot of wisdom that comes from the scripture. So if there's any tie-in to, to God's word, that can be helpful so that these aren't just 12 kind of self-help Uh, tips life hacks but but if they can even be anchored into into god's word and truth so we'll we'll see as we go through the process
1: sounds good sounds like a plan
0: all right here we go Um, number one the the first point of the sweat pledge i believe that i have won the greatest lottery of all time i am alive i walk the earth i live in america Above all things, I am grateful. So his, his first point starts with gratitude. How do you feel, how do you feel about that one? What, how, does that, how does that resonate with you guys? I believe that I've won the greatest lottery of all time. I'm alive. I walk the earth. I live in America. Above all things, I'm grateful.
2: I think for me, one of the, the things that... Being older um, causes you, or at least provides opportunity, to reflect on life, uh, the, the the panorama of experiences one has. And I would say, as I've gotten older, one of the things, one of the principal things I try to emphasize every day as I go through a day, is to take those moments to be thankful for the little things of life that are everyday occurrences, that allow one to build a positive outlook on life by taking those few moments in both thanking God, but also recognizing that um, in many respects, where you live, the time you live, where you live, and so forth provides wonderful opportunities and wonderful experiences and wonderful relationships, and to be thankful for those things. And it sets the stage for the day and how you view through the lenses of one's life every day, how you view life. And it helps keep things positive.
0: What's, what's an example from your guys' lives where <clears throat> you kind of were able to step outside of your world or even America and realize, <clears throat> whoa, like all that we've been given the privilege and the the blessings that have come from, from living here and just, yeah. Have you had experiences in your life where you kind of had that awakening?
1: I'll take like you ready one. to go. Di- oh, go ahead.
2: I was just going to say add one that it's a vision that I had. um Not a vision. Um It's, It was a situation that occurred that gave me a stark reality of things that happen in the world that don't necessarily happen here. I was sitting on a hill when I was in Vietnam and I was overlooking this valley and this valley was a place where uh, the local villages burned trash. And that's the way they got rid of trash. And I was looking at this kid. He must have been about eight or nine years old out there with a stick. Digging in that burning trash looking for food. That reality was, it, it's, it shaped much of my perspective about life. And um, it was... Um, is something I've never forgotten.
1: Wow. Mm. Doug, you look like you're, were you gonna say something? <laughs> we, it,
3: you know, it uh, wasn't outside our country, but uh, when I was a medical student, it, I was really hit hard by, uh, people would come in with their sick kids and they might not have very much money. And I started to, it bothered me that they had to uh, worry about what I considered little things like parking and paying for parking, you know, and where they're going to eat. And, and, uh, and uh, I just, you know, I, it just kind of, it, it really, uh, what well, made me sad but then I I was just trying to think of, you know, how, how those people could be helped. And, uh, it, I don't know. It, 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 it was just, uh, I don't know. I, I, I guess I felt at that time that I, you know, had the privilege of doing what I was doing and, uh, Actually, a few years later, the Ronald McDonald House was uh, formed in Iowa City, and that really helped these people a lot. You know, place to
1: stay in. Yeah, I guess on that second question mark. I mean, my my time in Zambia, obviously, that's my always my gut check time uh, every year, and. Um, to see not not just the disparity between what we have versus what they have. It's actually the joy and contentment that I see in them that is the most, mm. uh, I guess, soul-shaking part of it all. Um, yeah, if, if it was just that there was a disparity in stuff, but it's the disparity of stuff with their joy and American discontentment matched up. You know what I mean? And so that, that's probably what...
0: Have you- um, have you? And that's the paradox of prosperity. Is I don't know that it, it makes you more grateful.
1: No, it's interesting that you know you're asking where's an anchor in in the scriptures. And um, so this this coming week we uh, launched the second term of Veritas School of Theology, and uh, Saturday morning we're having a half day seminar, and it's all on the Psalms and wisdom literature. And uh, we're going to start the morning off uh, with Ecclesiastes and the unique, the unique message of Ecclesiastes in the Bible is that um, it's actually about a guy who does have it all, does accumulate everything that by any worldly standard you would have made it, you know, and the, the most repeated word in the entire book is emptiness. It's the word sometimes translated futility or, um, whatever, but it's it, like, I think just short, just shy of 40 times in the book, he refers to life as empty, <laughs> as futile, you know what I mean? So just that, uh, if if we begin to think that the amassing of stuff or accomplishment or education or sexual, you know, achievements, whatever those things are, he he actually gets to the end of Going after all those different things and yep. is bankrupt, empty. So anyway, it, we're gonna spend a little time in that book, but that's probably the theme of that whole book. Right? Is mm. the American dream? Yeah. And exactly. it breaks,
0: <laughs> it's interesting because I was thinking about Romans one in one twenty one, where he says, um, he says, although they knew God, they they refused to glorify Him or give thanks. Mm. one of the characteristics of unbelief is ungratefulness just not being refusing to be thankful refusing to acknowledge the gift of life and that that you owe you owe gratitude to somebody else and i think and even just the 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 lottery acknowledging like whoa i i didn't do anything to to earn or deserve this I, so i think I think there's a great place to start, you know, with just gratitude when you're thinking about what you have. Um, Let me go on to the second one. It says, I believe that I am entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Nothing more. I also understand that happiness and the pursuit of happiness are not the same thing. What do you think he means by that? Or what do you think is meant by that statement? This is on, yeah, you know, is the in topic of entitlement, right? He says, I'm, I'm entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, nothing more. I also understand that happiness and the pursuit of happiness are not the same thing. How do you guys interpret that?
2: I think of, of happiness as being as we were talking about under number 1 is living life with a sense of gratitude and thankfulness and looking at all the tremendous blessings that one has that really provide you with a sense of not only gratefulness but a sense of peacefulness and from that arises a sense of internal happiness in other words it's not something that comes from the outside but it comes from the inside and then secondly the pursuit is the outward activity of pursuing something or some outcome that you feel like once you get it you'll have happiness and um, external happiness just doesn't fill you.
3: Think it has something to do with purpose. Like, you know if you're pursuing happiness, you're, you have a real purpose in life and I, I think uh, the happiest times in my life were, were those where I was really working hard and, and uh, going after a goal. Uh, achieving the goal sometimes is gets into the emptiness. And i so I think- you know it's like it's like Jim and and me we uh both need to still have goals in life, or we're probably in trouble
0: doug I th- as you were talking, I think a lot of young people people on my stage look to your season of life as the time where we're going to really be happy <laughs> of <laughs> retirement right you've got your you know your your retirement fund is you're set up, and you're you're able to you know relax and do what you want and be totally free. Uh, so it sounds like you're saying that that may not be the case. No,
3: <laughs> that's uh, that's why uh, veritas has uh, been a blessing.
2: Mm. To carry on with one more thought about what Doug said, and that is it seems like happiness is in um for example, like working hard, but really it's it's the experience of going through a circumstance or a situation or something you're trying to accomplish. And all the struggles associated with that and the periods of frustration and disappointments and failures and so forth that make you who you are. But in that pursuit of accomplishing something, it instills in you a true deep sense of happiness. Mm.
0: I think there's something metaphorical about the clicking of the, the, there's a clock in someone's background that just tick, tick, and and I think there might be something metaphorical about that. Here we've got we've got uh, a <laughs> really deep uh, going on as the as the clock is ticking in the background.
2: Um, it's. I'm wonderful. guilty. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh no!
0: I, I love it. It's great. It's kind of the yeah the the background of our of this conversation is our life and reflecting on. Um, the time that passes and, and, and seizing these, these moments and living out our purpose. But I was thinking about when he talks about happiness, the way the, the Greeks, when we studied in, in college studying Plato, and he talks about, um, you know, the good life. That's the question of, of the Republic by Plato is like, what is the good life? What is the good life? And, and uh, the word for the good life is like, what is the just life or the happy life? Um, but they, the way the Greeks thought about happiness was more of a, an objective quality of happiness versus like when we think of happiness, we think of like the happiness that comes from drinking a a coke or a sugar drink or a roller coaster, where it's like a subjective feeling, you know. But for them, it was more of an a, a settled state of just like mmm joy, happiness uh and and so I think that um that sometimes our our definition of what is happiness is important and and thinking about because it's like the difference between living a selfish life making a lot of money just pursuing your career getting all this stuff and and being happy you know versus like giving it all up to be a mom or a dad or having children, like s- spending your life serving others and giving, and like there's a way that that is actually a greater pursuit of happiness, but it's more of a settled, satisfying kind rather than you know what I mean? I think the uh, when I think about that second point, I think, well, happiness defining that is is important the third the third one is and these start to get more practical as we get on but the third one is i believe there is no such thing as a bad job um i'm in the foyer so there's a lot of noise sorry um but uh we've got i think it's a wednesday prayer for our college students so that's pretty cool that was cool coming into church to pray uh but the third one is i believe there's no such thing as a bad job I believe that all jobs are opportunities and it's up to me to make the best of them. I'll say it again. I believe there is no such thing as a bad job. I believe that all jobs are opportunities and it's up to me to make the best of them. How have you seen that in your lives?
1: Well, uh, for me, the number one, bad job that comes to mind is I've always had this kind of aversion to toilets, bathrooms, like cleaning. Um, I do a lot of stuff around the house, whatever, but that, I don't know. <laughs> That's a tough... So when I got to uh, California to go to uh seminary and everything, the only job that I could get to provide for my family was as a custodian. And I'll never forget walking in one of the, this, massive uh, church with these big bathrooms and walking in the first time to one of these huge public bathrooms with just stall, of, stall, stall, stall of toilets and realizing, well, here you go. You know, like <laughs> here I was pursuing this great, you know, theological education, but the way I was going to get myself through was to scrub toilet after toilet after toilet. And honestly, there was something really, grounding about that i know it sounds kind of crazy but i i remember having this moment standing there on my first day at work like all right god you certainly make no mistakes <laughs> you knew exactly what it was going to take to like keep my feet solidly on uh, planet earth while my head's in the stratosphere of theological education so uh, it it actually became a joy i was able to lead uh, a couple guys to christ and um had like these two guys, their names were Elijah and Moses, and I'm not even kidding. <laughs> was a, and uh, I got one of them, one of them to stand up behind John MacArthur's pulpit and, and pretend to preach, and to you know, like all sorts. Like I had just a blast with these two guys. So anyway, just the joy that I I ended up having as a custodian cleaning toilets, uh, I still remember as one of my fondest moments but just deciding to embrace it you know what I mean and laugh at myself and embrace it so yeah I love that one actually that he put there
0: Doug and Jim what do you guys got I, I, I guess I, I learned
3: a lot about this from my parents who went through the great depression and their their idea was if you get a, any job that is a gift, and and I it, it kind of carried through to, I, I had a job, uh, I worked for a veterinarian when I was a kid, and I was making 87 cents an hour, and I wanted to quit because I wanted to go someplace where maybe I can make a buck an hour or something, you know, and both my parents really got angry with me, and they said, he's giving you that job for a, a couple of years you are going to stay with him period and they and that that's something I've never forgotten but they sensed that that he was a good guy and and my circumstances were a lot more important than the actual money that I was making and and they were they were right because I learned more from that job than quite a quite a bit of other jobs that I could have had, maybe.
2: Well, you had a better wage than I did when I started because I remember starting graduate school and I was working at the bunch of lunch for Shaky's Pizza Parlor over the lunch yard to make enough money to make a go at it. And I made a whole 35 cents an hour. <laughs> so those were, <laughs> were tough days. Um, I was going to add to my experiences that when I worked at the university, one of the things very early on um, is that I was trying to develop health and safety processes for all types of work in the university. And I remember coming alongside people that were custodians doing the work, And also people that were doing asbestos abatement and working in confined space and tunnels and so forth. And it was a hot, difficult set of jobs. But in order to work with them, to build a system that was best for them, you really had to come alongside them and to be partners with them to learn how they did what they did. And in that partnership, it gave you a sense of not only compassion, but also a sense of reality, because these are lives of everyday people and they were trying to do their very best um, to function as well as they possibly could. And that alignment and walking alongside with them really gave you a sense of understanding of their own personal struggles and lives and points of encouragement of how helpful it is to walk through difficult circumstances when somebody will align themselves with you and understand what you're having to go through in order to do it. Um, So that was, that was my experience.
0: I was thinking about a, a time, I mean, washing cars and painting and those are first couple jobs for me but one one thing in ministry that I think people struggle with is you know I was young in ministry and and watching my peers get jobs that I maybe wanted you know and I remember at the time where my buddy Paul Sabino got the salt director job and then at the same time I was being asked to take the youth pastor job and it's like the job I never wanted you know like it's I call youth ministry ministry purgatory, you know, atoning for past sins of my youth and uh God putting me in there. And uh sorry, Rebecca, just walked by and it it's freezing cold in here, by the way. I know I was
1: laughing. Um, <laughs> Rebecca goes by wrapped in this massive. <laughs> <blanket>. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is why I do it in the foyer. Just it's the
0: it's the background entertainment that happens. <laughs> um but thinking about that I learned so much during those four years of youth ministry that those were vital in me learning and growing and I was getting opportunities to work with parents and watch parents raise children watch dynamics of those teen years and learning how to teach the bible to young people if you don't you know, I was probably 30 to 40,000 feet in the air talking about, you know, preaching the glory of God and all these great things I was learning in college from reading John Piper. And then you get to a 13 year old who's like, yeah, that doesn't mean anything to me. And so you had to figure out how to teach it to a child and and how to take abstract concepts and make them more understandable. And these skills of you know, leading a team of volunteers where it's not, you don't have a staff where everyone's paid and they have to do what you're saying, you know? It's its just volunteers that may or may not show up and they have to be motivated internally. And like all those skills that I learned were shaping me in ways that uh, getting just the job that I wanted would would not have and and would actually have short-circuited that. So I feel like that, man, I... I completely agree with uh, that, that third point here. The fourth one, and that kind of leads into this one, and I love this one. Uh, I love to, to rant on this, and this kind of put into words what I've felt for a long time. Number four, I do not follow my passion. I bring it with me. I believe that any job can be done with passion and enthusiasm. I'll read it again. I do not follow my passion. I bring it with me. I believe that any job can be done with passion and enthusiasm.
1: I, I think Mike Rowe owes your father some royalties on that one. <laughs> yeah. My dad always says, if you
0: want it to be there, you got to bring it, right? If you, if you show up for church and you want there to be joy and love, you got to bring the joy and love if you wanna come into a small group and be encouraged, you gotta bring the encouragement. And uh, yeah, you gotta bring your passion with you. Uh, how have you guys seen that in your lives?
2: Mm. I think one of the things that <clears throat> is so resonated with me Mark, very early in your preaching days at Veritas, I always remember the sermon you gave about um, just showing up. Faithfulness is just showing up. And I think the start of the exercise of passion is, first and foremost, you got to show up. you got to be committed. And it has to be um, a part of your life. That resonates. And I think overcoming barriers of of only living for your own passion and bringing bringing passion starts with showing up and the faithfulness that results from that. What about you, Doug? I don't know why I
0: always.
3: I guess I was always fortunate and I, the jobs I had were uh, such that I, I mean, I, I love, I mean, I loved working and mm. it, so I, I don't know, maybe I, I guess it was just a, a privilege. I mean, you know, I mean, not early on, of course, I, I had jobs like Mark said, you know, uh, when I was, you know, working to get through school, but uh, after that, it—I—I uh, I don't know. I, I guess I was just really fortunate.
0: So you guys, no, that's that's the counter to this because I would say Jim and Doug, you guys are both examples, and Jeff, you know, of you guys did follow your passion, right? I mean, Jim, I, I wonder if you could just share just a quick bit of your story on struggling with dyslexia and, but you had to have passion. I mean, you, you said you had some elementary teacher at one point tell you, you'll never be more than a garbage garbage man or, I, I don't remember what the- actually,
2: that Actually, that was in junior high and that was my, the principal of the school I was at. And um, um, that I was the worst student in the school that I was the dumbest kid in the school and I would never amount to anything. And um, Fortunately, at that point in my life, it was water off a duck's back. Otherwise, I think it would have shaped the rest of my life. But um, having a learning disability and not being able to read or write I didn't really start writing until I graduated from high school. I mean, I just I couldn't write and put sentences together. And um, those people that take language arts as uh, just it just flows for them. Uh, it doesn't flow for, for all of us. So.
0: But how did you get from that, <clears throat> not being able to read and write very well through high school? to now being such a voracious reader, being so well-read, you know, getting through very technical, what, what was your PhD in, PhD in?
2: I did a, a PhD in biochemistry um, in organic and I applied quantum mechanics to biological systems. That was what my work was. Okay, and, uh, so what do
0: you get from, you'll never amount to anything, to that?
2: I close, here's my statement. When I was in college and also in graduate school, but certainly in college, I closed the library every single night for four years. I studied all day, every day, every imaginable moment. And I slept almost none at all, trying to overcome the learning and the reading and the writing difficulties. And I just, I never quit. Um, and so I think it was slow. Even in in graduate school, I continued to work on writing. Um, and certainly, in my work a day world for all those years, trying to work on writing and skills and things like that, it just it never quit and the reason is that it 's communication is needed writing is needed. When I look at some of jeff 's writing, it just flows beautifully <laughs> it 's incredible
0: getting an encouragement Yes. Uh, is the best thing ever because the writing is like just like an art. Just flows.
1: Well, Jim, here's the deal. I can't even repeat back to you what you studied well alone understand what it actually was. So <laughs> we all have something we bring and we all have empty hands in other areas. That's uh, awesome. You hey, Doug, way outpaced me.
0: And, okay, it's and so a real quick before I ask Doug. So Jim, then you went on and you were, you were a pretty significant player over at the University of Iowa in terms of your job and what you oversaw. Um, and so there was... Yeah, that didn't just happen, did it?
2: (laughs) It did. It did not just happen. Any time that I was in, there's a downside to having to work all the time. And really we were talking about, you said very early on about raising teenagers and the time that's necessary. My job was so demanding and such a struggle that I really didn't take the time I needed for my kids. And so there was a cost, Uh, it's not free. And so there's trade-offs to that. And um, at the university in my job is I would had to stay up in most of the fields of current research. And so you just spent your every waking moment reading research papers and trying to understand what people were doing, both in terms of basic science and clinical science and that whole it's just university is a big place <laughs> and it was hard to keep up with all the research so, so but there was a cost
0: know mm. so i'm thinking about you your story i mean you're, you're from a small town iowa your dad was a barber and probably low-income family and you know you were a radiologist for your career and and obviously that that took a ton of hard work right i mean uh what was kind of your path to get there i had to take a lot of resolve and passion yeah i i
3: i I was fortunate because my mother was a, a a teacher she was kind of a substitute teacher didn't make very much money but uh was a lot of encouragement there. So I I did have that um you know going for me in in life. But I when I went to uh when I first went to college I I kind of I got caught up in the 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 college atmosphere the party atmosphere and then there was a point about a year and a half into it where I realized my life was pretty empty. you know, you know, the parties and everything like that. And and I, I I was also working quite a bit. I, I said, no, I've got to, I've got to change this around. And I, I kind of made a game out of uh, getting grades. And I started to really enjoy it. I, I kind of did like Jim did. I I enjoyed studying. I, and, uh, so I, I, I would not only try to get an A, I would try to see how high of an A I could get, you know, I mean, that would, I mean, it, it, it was just really, I mean, it was kind of a strange thing, but, uh, I, I guess it is, it it's kind of like a work hard and you see rewards and then the reward was the grade. And then ultimately the grade led to being able to get into medical school. And then I just kept that going. And, and then, uh, the the subject matter in medical school it just it was a lot more interesting to me, and I, I, I just loved it. Uh, there was even though it was difficult work, it boy I would I wouldn't tr- I wouldn't trade that for anything. I would I would do it again in a heartbeat.
0: I think this point is 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 apt for this generation because you know we're we're taught. You know we give our kids unique names because we want them to be special and we tell them their whole life how great they are and and you know it we it, were very affirming of them and we want them to follow their dreams and live their passion and i think this point is so good because it's like um yeah this idea of you you know jim you mentioned the just show up thing the we, we, everybody wants to be amazing. Everyone wants to change the world. Everyone wants to live their passion. And I think, um, you know, I'm trying to teach our kids like this point, like find something that needs to be done and go figure out how to do it. Like there's all this money out there. All you have to do is just go collect it. Just go find it. Right. People are paying a lot of money to get their lawns mowed. Okay figure out how to go collect that money it's right there and and just go find something that needs to be done and i was talking to the developer of this whole property out here um who's been very successful and asking them about um college you know and they're like he was like man i don't remember two things i learned in college but that helped me for this you know but but just the development and uh yeah, buying buying land, developing it, buying building houses, and doing things. I think there's a lot of different ways to um, to live this out um, by just yeah finding what needs to be done and going for it, and bringing your passion into that thing.
1: Um, so I, I mean, don't you think though too? It's not so much going out and finding those pods of money out there it's actually finding out what needs to be done. Sometimes that will end up having a monetary reward in addition, Mm -hmm. but some of the most happy content people are the people that find a passion in things that don't pay monetarily (laughs) that well, you know what I mean? And, and they end up having this again, going back to my Zambian friends, that's but here in the States as well. Um, you know, the school teacher or coach or whatever that just finds themselves thrilled that they were able to impact lives through their life, um, never found that pot of gold, never found it a way to make that a lucrative choice, but found it incredibly rewarding. You know what I mean? And so, yep. yeah, helping helping our kids, uh, yeah, find joy and contentment yep. in those ways, you know? Right. Absolutely.
2: And I think in that regard, um, in terms of the taking it back to the idea of teenagers <clears throat> is that I really believe God created us with certain gifts and talents and passions that when we align our choices with those passions that naturally come to us, and how I define that is if you can do something even though you're tired and kind of worn out, but you just want to do it. That's your passion. Mm. And in that, trying to align what you do in the available opportunities out there, be it walking alongside a student, going to a nursing home to meet somebody, to mentor a young person, to help somebody overcome a difficulty, those are passions that are de- that define us, but those passions were built into us because that's the way God made us. And trying to help the teenager and help your children to align opportunities with those passions, really it's like having a a big strong wind in your sail at your back. It just things work that way. Mm.
0: So I, I'm almost feeling like you guys maybe I don't know if you're disagreeing with this point, but you're adding kind of a different angle to it because it sounds like you guys are examples of people who did follow your passion <laughs> and it paid, but I think the story that Mike Rowe tells, uh, so on his, if you go to his website or just Google Sweat Pledge Mike Rowe. Um, he tells a story about this guy. One of his first episodes of Dirty Jobs was this guy in Wisconsin who, uh, basically, cleans out sewage systems. I don't know, uh, and and so he'll go in and and he'll he has his big truck and he pumps out the crap, you know, from whatever wherever he is. And he was doing a job for the city of one of the cities in Wisconsin, and and he's standing there in all this poop you know with Mike Rowe and Mike Rowe's like do you ever get used to the smell how do you deal with the smell and he looks at Mike Rowe and he's like that's the smell of money <laughs> as he's pumping this crap and he's just just smiling like he's having the time of his life you know and, and, and so Mike Rowe asked the guy he's like what how did you get here what was your path and he said I was a he was some type of like maybe a psychiatrist or some type of psychologist, and Mike Rowe said, "Why would you leave that to come into this, you know, place?" and and he said, "I just got tired of dealing with other people's crap." <laughs> 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 so, it was his example of each of these each of these twelve. Uh, <clears throat> Ledges has a little video that goes along with it. So you can click on them and watch him. Uh, but I think that's an example of, you, you know, we, uh, yeah. Finding something that needs to be done and going for it and bringing your passion into it. Um, and there can be a joy in, in doing a blue collar job that, that may, you may not find in a white collar job. There might be more satisfying to just yeah. point of just doing something uh, that may not be as, as seem as noble or whatever and as world-changing but can bring satisfaction. Um, I, we're not going to get all, through all six of these, but I want to I try to get halfway through. Okay, so just two more, and then maybe next time we'll pick it up uh, with the rest of them. But uh, here's number five. I deplore debt, and I do all I can to avoid it. I would rather live in a tent and eat beans than borrow money to pay for a lifestyle I can't afford
2: believe the proverb the borrower is the slave of the lender
0: Mm. how have you seen that in your life
2: for me I think it was living on 35 cents an hour trying to go to school Taught you how to live frugally and exercising care and trying to borrow money because it's so easy to get borrow and so hard to pay back, and it affects one's choices dramatically. Can can we move? Can we do this
0: Uh, on a scale of foolish debt? to wise debt or no debt, like, you know what I mean? I wanna start on one side and just say, what's the most obvious form of foolish debt? Like in an obvious area where it's like, yeah, never never borrow money for that. What's an example? Gambling
3: or bookie or bookie.
0: Okay, gambling, <laughs> don't ever use borrowed money for that. What's another, like if we're moving now over this way toward uh, what's another example of debt?
2: buying an unnecessary consumable?
0: Okay, an unnecessary consumable. So uh, putting a you know seventy-inch TV on a credit card.
2: Yeah. Well, that yes, but I put that also in the category of never invest your money in a depreciating asset. Okay. That as soon as you buy it, it goes down in value, and you can never regain what you paid for. It. And I mean, I it,
1: it goes even more absurd than that in the sense that there are a lot of people that use their credit card for just going out to eat, going to the movies, going to concerts, you know, whatever, that there's no asset at all. Not only is it not depreciating, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know to, what I mean? And so I, that, that kind of debt, entertainment, I guess, maybe yeah. debt uh, I into, is rampant. And I would say is perhaps the most foolish.
0: You go into like a lot of college students' houses and... You know back in the day there were just rows and rows of DVDs you know those are what 20 bucks a pop you know 20 30, 40 bucks a pop for, for those and you think just a wall lined up with DVDs that they probably never watch now it's probably people making you know digital downloads that you don't you don't see the DVD rack but it's on, it's on a hard drive and it's money that's just yeah those, those types of purchases just one click away from spending 10 to 30
1: bucks here and there and i think you know people often will will talk about education debt as investment kind of a debt but it it all depends on your perspective you know that like jim was saying all those choices um end up decide they, they determine the, the choices you have later on down the road another like when i was going to graduate school I knew that I was, since I was going into ministry, I was likely going into a a non-lucrative career. Well, I couldn't amass a bunch of debt because there's a lot of debt involved, the potential of debt involved in seminary, not just law school or something, you know what I mean? And so I'm watching my friends just amass all this. Well, then they couldn't go into ministry because that kind of career could not hold the debt load that you brought with it. And so I'm just saying... Some people want to imagine that education debt is always a good investment, but the level of education debt that people are carrying right now, very few careers can hold the weight of the debt that they're incurring. Um, So even with education debt, I chose to do what I could. Like in, In graduate school, I paid off my undergraduate school as well as paying for my graduate studies yeah. just so that i would never have to experience education debt once i got out and would then be free now i've got this the sheepskin for whatever that's worth but at least i can go do whatever i want to do and not be hindered you know so, so
0: what's yeah what's your guys's advice on someone listening and and wondering about school debt because we've got a church filled with i mean you know it, so this example a guy um not too long ago I was like okay I, I want to go into ministry um, and I, I, I don't know I'm a, starting my sophomore year and I don't know if I should keep going because to finish school is going to be 60 plus thousand dollars 60 000 to 80 thousand dollars of debt and I think I want to do ministry um, you know what's your advice to them?
2: One is to exercise extreme caution about Piling on a lot of debt because it will restrict your choices later. And secondly, rather than taking a singular approach to it, there are different ways of getting an education in your sheepskin rather than going out and going to a certain school or borrowing a lot of money. So, for example, if your purpose is to get through college, one of the things that I see that you can actually go to community college, work part-time at the same time, get your education. And the other thing it does, for example, like at Iowa, if you have a, a Kirkwood Community College general degree in two years, then you don't have all those required courses that you have to take. And that saves you three semesters. That's a lot of money. And so there are different avenues of working your way to get that ultimate sheepskin without incurring a lot of debt. And so uh, that would be my, my words of wisdom is that the more debt you have, the fewer choices that you're going to have later.
0: And you see that all the time with, and then you get one person who took on, you know, 20 to $80,000 and then they get married and they're, spouse has the same thing and now you've got 80 to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars of debt and you're trying to and now it does affect your choices because you have to work and the choice about you know when are we ready to start our family all of a sudden that uh, you're carrying you're dragging that anchor of debt doug what what have you seen because you've worked with a lot of college students and Leading yeah, I, I,
3: I think you have to have uh, some kind of an end goal. Uh, you know, obviously, I mean, well, Mike Rowe is one that doesn't believe everyone should go to college, or maybe go to community college to learn uh, a trade, but because so many of the so many of the students have debt that they they really don't have any uh, end game there. There. They just have debt without a, a purpose. Um, for me, the the debt that I had, I mean, it was no deal after I got out. But, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I think for a lot of people, it's not true.
0: Yeah. 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 This is a this is a huge one. The borrower is a slave to the lender. That's that's just the way it works, isn't it? So if you got debt, you're a slave uh, to that, the person you're borrowing from.
1: I I would say this too, Mark, now that all of my kids are adults, um, we span the whole spectrum. Uh, In the four kids, there's zero college, trade school, learned a trade, college degree, and then grad school. Like all four of my kids represent all, all those things. And I would say you can't determine their like happiness in life based on those choices. So back, back to the point of how desperately do you need that education? You know how, if that's the kind of debt we're talking about right here, you have to ask yourself, what is that goal? Like Doug's saying, you know, is, is it an essential piece to what you want to accomplish in life? don't just make the assumption, Oh, I must go to college. I, whatever it takes, whatever debt load I must incur that won't necessarily equal sign happiness, fulfillment kind of job that I yep. will, will fulfill the hardwiring God has, has put within me. You know what I mean? And so, yep. yeah, I, for some having some school debt is wise. And if contained and purposeful, um, but I think people should be afraid of it. You know what I mean? Like he, he talks about, he deplores debt. I think that's okay. Like if you actually deplore it, we do a lot of, you know, we take medicine that we deplore, but we know it's good for us, you know? So anything like that, that you want to do in moderate, but but don't just consume it yeah. and, and you know, assume that it's a means to a greater end because that's that's not necessarily true.
2: Jim, yeah. what I've heard
0: you talk about college and I wonder if you could just give a little soundbite on just like the purpose of college because it might not someone might say so I, well, I didn't really learn anything in college you know or I didn't learn a, like <clears throat> I heard you talk about this before where it's almost not the point is not necessarily to teach you a specific trade but you're kind of learning how to learn or you're like what what was what was your explanation of what college is
2: it's really developing the skills necessary to make prudent decisions in life. Um, when I, I remember finishing my, when I was doing my orals for my PhD and the last question the professor asked me said, what did you learn? And I said, two things, one is that I learned how to learn, and secondly, I learned how little I know. And really what what education is, and I think this goes back to what Doug's point was, which I think was, it's actually the most important point, is you need to be thinking about what you want your ultimate outcome to be. What's your purpose? And then work along those lines, because based upon what your purpose is, excuse me, the kind of skills you need will determine probably the education you need to pursue. And so you're tailoring your education and your subsequent costs to your purpose.
0: Yeah. Good. We, this is the last one. And then we'll, we'll it down this one, number six says, I believe that my safety is my responsibility. I understand that being in compliance does not necessarily mean I'm out of danger. Why is this? Why would this be one of the 12 on his list of 12 things? This seems Pretty intuitive, but, but obviously he feels a need to put this in here. Why, why is this a significant one? I believe that my safety is my responsibility. I understand that being in compliance does not necessarily mean I'm out of danger.
1: Man, it, I mean, it's been a long time since I, I watched uh dirty jobs. I mean, it's, I don't think on anymore or whatever, but I remember back when, when he was doing it, how much he just brought a, A noble aspect to every possible job and career. And I I used to love that, that, you know, like you described the guy in Wisconsin or whatever, you know, just made dirty jobs a noble thing. But he also, I think, gave us the right perspective that these are smart, brilliant men and women who know how to take care of themselves and should trust their own instincts. You know what I mean? Like, if, if you're on a job that OSHA says you can do this or your job or your boss says you can, but, but you're like, ah, I don't think that's safe or whatever. I mean, just that, I don't know, the respect for image bearers, you know, that, that can chart their own course, make decisions for themselves, be wise and not to always have people entrust themselves to somebody else. You know, like be responsible, be, be, uh,
0: Yeah. Yeah. An example I I thought of is we Jeff we went over to Doug's to cut down a help cut down an oak tree that had fallen down or help you know pile it up and and thinking about the danger of a chainsaw oh, and and how I think when you take responsibility for yourself you can't blame somebody else. Right. So if That's something right. happened to us we realize we're not going to sue Doug because it's us that's responsible. And I think the mentality of someone is I, I, I'm looking for someone to blame. Yes. I'm looking for someone to blame. If I make this cut and the tree falls on me, or if the saw kicks back at me, uh, I, I wanna find a reason to blame somebody else. And I think this point is huge to say that's on it's your responsibility before you start that chainsaw to understand how that thing works and yep. the dangers and the risk involved, Uh, have you guys, that was kind of an example of where I think this point is so important, because we might be looking to.
2: I think I would add um, the idea of life choices into that category, about thinking about responsibility, takes responsibility from a different vantage point. For example, the one that came to mind immediately was going downtown Iowa City when the bars were open at 10 o'clock at night with all, among all the drunks and all the things going on. It's like putting yourself in harm's way and what's the purpose of that? So thinking about the choices and the situations that you put yourself in that can put you in maybe a sense of danger, but you're not, you wanna be part of the experience but there's, it's not a free lunch. There could be potential consequences. So i thinking about the choices of where you put yourself and the kind of experiences that you want to have also puts it in the category of res- responsibility and safety.
0: Doug, you got anything on this point?
3: Oh, I, I was never one to trust, trust the federal government to protect me. To protect me. Um, I never thought that anybody in Washington, D.C., could know exactly what I'm doing, and so I always felt responsibility. I guess I always felt the responsibility was mine. Like if I if I have a needle in my hand and a you know needle sticks that kind of thing, uh, you, you uh, it came down to. I guess my own training and everything and not some, uh, you know, thousand page document.
1: No, Doug, that's foolish. It's always somebody else's responsibility. (laughs) (laughs) That's that hospital administrator. That's that government regulation. No, if you stick your finger, somebody else is at fault. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah.
0: Well, I think this is an important point because, um, You know, the economist, I don't know what his title would be, but Thomas Sowell, you know, has kind of been a, he's like a one man think tank, you know, Um, I don't know on the spectrum how controversial he is or whatever, but he said um, something that I, I think is true. He said, we're getting closer and closer to the place where nobody's responsible for what they did but everyone is responsible for what someone else did. So I'm not responsible for the chainsaw situation. I can't take responsibility for that, but it's everyone else's fault for my chainsaw example, you know. Everybody else is responsible for it somehow because somebody didn't write that document, somebody didn't put that in the fine print. And so it's someone else's fault or, you know, I think there's a lot of cultural examples right now of the consequences of people not taking responsibility for their own actions. You know, I think this is something that I really want to teach my children that, you know, they have to, they have to take responsibility for, you know, they're taking these online classes. Uh, I know they're cheat. I know there's a lot of students that are cheating in these online classes and they're figuring out hacks, you know, and ways to, uh, to cheat and get through the classes. But um, that's where I talk to my kids. Like just know that if you get, I mean, number one, you shouldn't be doing this, but if you do and you get caught and all of a sudden you don't have your high school diploma because you were cheating your way through it, that's nobody else's fault. That is your fault. You, you know what I mean? If you have a run-in with, you know, we talked to our kids about, about, you know, you have a run-in with any kind of law, whether it's an employer, whether it's a law enforcement, whether it's a principal, like you take ownership for your choices you know what i mean don't don't look to blame somebody else for what you yourself did
2: yeah i think the corollary to that the other side of that coin is to say it's important that you make the most of your god-given opportunities which really takes us back to item number one you know that we're given these marvelous opportunities because there's so many people in the world that don't have an opportunity for education. Um, it's just, and it's easy to take the things given to you for granted. And this is an ob and you don't want to squander that. It is a gift. And don't, don't squander the gift. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: yeah. And then
2: I do think that our, our schools and even our government are trying to, trying to minimize the impact of our own poor choices, socializing debts, socializing bad practices of corporations, um, trying to spread the damage among the collective rather than assigning responsibility for that. It's it's very difficult, and but in the end, for example, like not making the most of your opportunity, who suffers from that is you as an individual, and to think about in those terms of trying to make the best choices possible.
0: Yep. Well, you guys, we we made it halfway through, and uh, maybe we'll we'll pick it up uh, another time uh, to to talk through the rest of them. But I I think this is. Good for me i 'm trying to process uh, personally what this looks like how to how to uh, transfer this into my kids but also the next generation. I think there's a lot of wisdom here um, and I love listening to you guys and there's something so grounding for me just to talk to someone who's you know thirty years ahead of me and and looking at um, Yeah. Just, just your, I I mean, I feel like when I'm talking to you guys, I'm able to talk to myself in 30 years. Like what would I be saying to myself uh, 30 years from now? And so this is always, always so, so good. So thanks guys for, for taking the time to talk and um, Jeff, I'm going to leave you at the last word. And if you could pray us out, that'd be awesome.
1: Yeah. I think for the, the last word today, it'd be the last word, what we start off with, with, ecclesiastes you know but beyond these my son you know i love i love the the way that this older guy is reaching back to say here is my life journey i'm trying to contribute now kind of like what you're talking about with your teenage sons and looking to these guys to dump back to you so in the spirit of that be it but beyond these my son be warned there is no end to the making of many books and much study wearies the body when all has been heard the conclusion of the matter is this fear God and keep his commands. (laughs) I just love the purity of at the end of the day, you know, fear God, keep his commands because this is for all humanity. God will bring every act of judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. I mean, if we can teach our teenage sons and daughters to just, just follow God, just, (laughs) you know, whatever career path, whatever educational path, whatever, you know, because he will teach you how to have integrity, strong work ethic, purity of heart and soul and mind. You know what I mean? And it's, it comes down to just such a simple thing. So yeah, let me, uh, let me pray us out. God, I do thank you for wisdom that um, is certainly found in your word. And then Lord, we get to see it played out in the lives of those who have gone before us, um, either for the good or the bad, watching people that take the wrong path and, and seeing the destruction, but also finding men and women who find the path of wisdom and seeing the fruit of that Lord. So um, help us to be teachable, Lord, and help our teens, especially as, as Mark's on this quest, to help his teens to have that hungry, teachable heart as well. Um, oh, if we could just instill in every next generation, young um, man and woman, to have a teachable heart, Lord, um, wow, that will be pure gold to them. And so uh, make that our goal. Um, yeah, we thank you, God, for this, this day, for this screen full of men that I'm deeply grateful for. We want to honor you, Lord. So hear us as we lift our lives up to you in Christ's name. Amen.
0: Amen. Amen. Well, thanks guys. And uh, thanks everyone for joining us this week on the round table. Hope you feel a part of the conversation too. And just as we interact and, and have conversations, hopefully it's been an iron sharpening iron time and, and leaving courage. So have a great day and uh, we will talk to you guys. See you next time.